Hey there, everyone. Welcome. So good to have you with us today. Hey, I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 today. We're going to continue our series we kicked off last week called Jesus at the Center. And so last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus gives us a new identity, that when we put him as at the center of our lives, make him the Lord of our lives, that one of the, the results of that is that we receive a new identity, that we become a new creation in Christ. In fact, I want to read the passage that we read out of the book of Second uh, Corinthians last week. We talked about the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, the a city that was vibrant and bustling, had all kinds of activity, uh, but it was a very broken place, a very uh, dysfunctional place in the world. And so Paul writes to the believers in that city to encourage them about their new identity in Christ and to remind them who they are. And so he writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in, is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. We're called to live our lives in Christ, that he would be the center of our lives, that we would be completely hidden in him, and that our lives would be defined by the life of Jesus Christ. And so just as it was for the Corinthian church, the same is true for us today, that the things around us in the world can really come into comp competition and compete for that, that central place in our lives. Uh, and then at the same time, the, the things in our own hearts, our own desires, our own uh, desires of our flesh, our wants and our passions can also come up against and compete with Jesus being at the center of our lives. And so the reminder here for us is that we are a new creation, that God has made us brand new. We're not just a, a revised model. We're not just a, a revamped model, that God has done a complete transformation in our lives, that we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new is here. And he calls us to live in that. He calls us to live in that reality, to embrace all that he is. And so I want to keep talking about this theme today. I want to keep talking about what it means to put Jesus at the center, to make him the focal point of our lives, for him to be everything of who we are, that we would turn our attention and our gaze on him, that we would gaze on the face of God, that we would gaze on the presence of Jesus in our lives. A number, number of years ago, I was introduced to a really powerful teaching series. It was a video series that, in fact, we've done here at Thrive Church before called The Truth Project. It was something produced by uh, Focus on the Family. And Dr. Del Tackett is the one who led that series of, of teaching. It was a, a powerful uh, multi-week study on, the, on, on really discovering truth and understanding how the truth of God's word impacts our lives. And one of the things that Dell says in that series is that there's no aspect of human existence of our lives to which God has, has not spoken, that he addresses every facet of our living, of our being, of our relationships, of our existence in this world. But he asks this question in the midst of the Truth Project series. He asks this, he says, what happens when we gaze upon the face of God? What happens when we, 
gaze upon the face of God? What happens in your life and what happens in my life? Well, I'll answer the question. When we gaze on the face of God, we are transformed. Our lives are forever changed. It's what Paul says again in 2 Corinthians, that the old is gone and the new has come. That when we put that, that primary focus on the life of Jesus, that everything changes. In fact, that when we, when we look at God, when we gaze on his face, what we see is the truth. What, what is revealed to us is what is true. And it's Jesus who, who, who said this. He said that you will know the truth, that you will know him, and that the truth will set you free. With that passage right there, that verse has been quoted uh, in so many places and so often out of context that this is more than just uh, knowing what is true versus a, a lie, but it is knowing the truth, knowing Jesus our Lord and Savior, that he is the truth, the life, and the way, and that when we make him the center of our lives, everything is changed. Everything is transformed. Well, it is July, and I want to actually do a little Christmas in July today. Uh, we're going to look at uh, what is most often a story associated with Christmas and the Christmas story. Uh, Christmas in July is a thing. I know people celebrate that and, you know, it's that halfway mark of the year. We just passed the halfway point of the year. And so uh, there's fewer days to Christmas now than there are left in the year. You know, all of that stuff. We're, we're, we're he full on headed towards Christmas. We're going to do a little Christmas in July. So we're going to take a look at the wise men. The, the wise men and, and this child, this young child, Jesus, by the time that the wise men showed up in Bethlehem to see him, wasn't at the manger. It wasn't uh, in that stable. Uh, it was probably a couple of years later that the Magi showed up. And so Jesus was probably a toddler at this point. But in either case, they, they show up on the scene. They come to Bethlehem uh, to visit this child that has been born. And I think we're su super familiar with the story. We, we, we uh, sing songs about it at Christmas. It's Christmas carols that we sing. Uh, but there are some some truths that are really uh, truth nuggets that are contained within this story that apply to this idea of Jesus being at the center of our lives. So I want to read uh, out of Matthew chapter two, and then we'll unpack some of these thoughts together today. This is what it says, Matthew chapter two, starting in, in verse one, and I'll read verse one and two to start. It says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east uh, to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when, we, when it rose and have come to worship him. So I'm going to pause there for a second. So, so the Magi, the wise men, show up in Jerusalem. They're, they've traveled now from this land in the east. We don't know which country, which nation, or how far exactly they came. We know that they, they traveled the long distance to get to where they are. And they're on this quest. They've seen the star that has risen in the east. And, and now they are on this quest. They're on this journey to find Jesus, the one who has been born the king of the Jews. And so they arrive in Jerusalem and they're asking this, this question around Jerusalem. Imagine that their, their whole entourage is just in this city and, and they're asking, have you heard? Well, news of this gets to King Herod. The news of this, the, these foreigners that are in town 
who've said, hey, there is this king of the Jews who's been born and we're looking for him. And so he intercepts uh, these, these wise men, these magi, and, and he's threatened by what they're saying because he is the king. He's the one that has been installed by the Roman government to be kind of this puppet, to be this, this dictator in the land. And, and he's hanging on to the power that's been given to him to rule in this land. So he doesn't want any competition. And so he says to the wise men, hey, you guys go and you find this one that you're looking for. Go find this king. And when you do, let, let, let me know. Come back and let me know because I want to go worship him as well. And of course, Herod's intent was to do the very opposite of worship him. His desire, as we would find out later in the story, is to actually take Jesus's life. And so from here, the wise men keep traveling. Uh, they, keep, they keep looking around. And so they make the journey from where Jerusalem is, just not too many miles away to the south, to the town of Bethlehem. And so we'll pick the story up in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Matthew. It says this, After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So, so they, they show up in Bethlehem. And I imagine it must have been quite a scene. Like I said, they've traveled a long distance from this foreign land in, a, in the east. They're, they're not Jewish. Uh, they're not Jewish men. They're not Ju- they're, they're entourage or not Jewish people. So they would have stuck out. Their, their clothing, uh, their animals, the, the, the whole, their whole presence would have stuck out. And Bethlehem was a small town. It wasn't like Jerusalem. And so they really would have stuck out. In, in Bethlehem. Uh, it says that they were magi. The, the word there, magi, uh, we, we've interpreted as wise men, but it's actually the, 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 another translation or another way to put it would be that they were magicians. Uh, and we don't know exactly kind, what kind of magicians they were. Uh, it, just, it just indicates that they were ones that, that studied, they were astronomers, they, they, they were learned, they, they, they were wealthy. Um, and so they had some kind of uh, some kind of notoriety. They were they, they were um, in their land. They would have probably been well known. But they'd made this journey to come and find Jesus. What this does tell us, though, the fact that they're magi is it means that they are not worshippers of Yahweh, that they were not followers of God. And so the fact that these foreigners who are not worshippers of Yahweh show up. To find Jesus, the one who had been born and the king of the Jews, was extremely significant. This speaks to the fact that Jesus came not just for the Jews, not just for the Israelites, that he came for all people. And so even those outside of the the promised land, outside of Israel, were aware of the coming of the Savior into the world. And so this is a real turning point, and it really points towards the message that Jesus would bring, the gospel that he would preach, and the fact that later on that that gospel would spread to the, spread to the ends of the earth, even to where we are today. We don't know why or how they knew about the star. 
We don't know what information they had received or, or uh, what, what even made up the star, why that star. There, there's conjecture about the alignment of different planets, but, but really there's more questions than there are answers, which so often is the case when it comes to our faith and following God. That God doesn't just give us all the answers. There's this part where we go, Lord, we just believe. We believe that you work in, in mysterious ways and that we, we have to walk by faith in that regard. So we don't know how they heard about Jesus. We just know that they saw the star in, in the West. For them, it would have been in the West, and they followed that star until they came to the place where Jesus was. It could have been that the Israelites, the Jews who had been in exile in Babylon, had shared prophecies about the, the coming Messiah one day. It could be that they read manuscripts and some of the writings, the ancient writings that existed in that day. But really, the most feasible thing, I believe, is this, is that they had received a word from God, that God somehow had spoken to them and said, my son is coming into the world. Go and worship him. Another thing that we often assume is that there were three kings. We, we sing the song, we three kings, right? The reason we think that there were three is because there were three gifts. And we'll talk about the gifts here in a minute. Uh, it's a very Western thing to do, to assume that there were as many gift people as there were gifts. Um, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, if they were as wealthy and well-known as uh, Scripture makes them out to be, they probably had quite the entourage. They had quite the, the group that traveled with them. And so there were probably many of the Magi, plus who, however many people were there to support and, and care for them as they, as they traveled. Uh, but we do know this. They came a long distance, and they came to Bethlehem. They came to the place where Jesus was living where Joseph and Mary had established themselves there in Bethlehem, and they come and they find the baby, they find the, the child Jesus, and they worship him. So I want to draw a couple of uh, observations from this story regarding putting Jesus at the center of our life. There's three things, in fact, that I want to point out. The first is this, and I just talked a little bit about this. The Magi left home to find Jesus. They leave home to find Jesus. They made an incredible investment of time, of resources, of energy. Uh, they, they even risked their lives traveling. It's not like hopping on a plane or hopping on an interstate and, and doing a quick trip somewhere. Uh, it would have been a dangerous journey. There was inherent risk in this journey. But they chose to leave home and to risk and to sacrifice so that they could go and find Jesus and worship him. See, home is often a picture of comfort, of ease, and of safety. Now, I know it's not always the case, but in a large sense, when we think of home, we think about the place where we are the most comfortable, the place where we find rest, the place where we feel the safest. In fact, when you were a kid, your mom probably said to you, hey, don't go too far away from home. If you were playing out in the neighborhood, hey, you need to be able to stay in, 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 enough, in a short enough distance away that you can hear my voice. Or I know some moms and dads would whistle or there was different, different rules that they had. You can't go 
past this street in this direction or past that street. For some, it wasn't you. You're not allowed to leave the yard. You have to play in the yard, depending on where you grew up. But from a young age, it's reinforced into our into our lives that home is the place where we're the safest. The home is the place where we are comfortable. In fact, home is often the place where we settle. It's, it's where we kind of put our roots down in the place where we stay. Now, some people uh, have grown up and lived in the same home for years and years. I know people who've only ever lived in two homes maybe in their entire life. Um, I, my life has not been that way. I've traveled a lot and I've lived in a lot of different places and many, many different homes. And so that, that, that picture is different for, for all of us. But we do know this, is that, that our home, wherever it may be, at whatever time is, that is the place that is safe. That is the place that is comfortable. That can be the place where we settle. But here's the thing about a journey with Jesus, about walking with him and putting him at the center of our lives, is that a journey with Jesus is anything but settling. There's really nothing settling about our relationship with God. When we say yes to him, we're actually signing up for an adventure. We're not signing up for something that's, that's convenient and easy and safe, that there is risk involved. There is something of, of sacrifice, and we'll even talk about that in a minute, that's involved when we put Jesus at the center of our lives. And we see this uh, kind of echoed in the lives of the Magi as they, in their, in their commitment to find Jesus, to worship him, are willing to leave behind the comforts of home, the trappings of home, the things in their nation and in their culture and in their, their very homes to be able to say, we're going we're gonna to travel and we're going to go find Jesus. Jesus himself addresses this. Uh, later on in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus' encounter with some of his very first disciples. Listen to what Jesus has to say. Because here's the thing about Jesus is Jesus did not intend for us to settle. In fact, in so many ways, when Jesus enters into our life, when we invite him to be our Lord, things get disrupted. Things don't settle. Listen to what happened with the disciples in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. It says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James son, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. This passage of scripture, the calling of these first disciples, as it would be titled in my Bible and pro probably yours as well, uh, is one that, that if you're familiar with the, the journey of the disciples is maybe one you've heard about before. The, the, the words immediately and at once really stick out, don't they? Here are these guys who have their profession. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They are fishermen. They've grown up as fishermen. They probably come from generations of, of fishermen. This is what 
they do. This is what they know how to do. This is their livelihood. This is their identity. This is their place of comfort, of safety, of security. Uh, It's a beautiful part of the world. The Sea of Galilee and that whole region of Galilee is gorgeous. The, The hills and the mountains that surround it, beautiful lake. It's lush. It's green. Uh, and, and they would have lived uh, comfortable lives, not easy lives, but definitely comfortable lives. And it was predictable for them. But then this man, Jesus, shows up and he says to them, come, follow me. Come, follow me. And all four of these men says that immediately and at once they dropped their nets. They dropped what they were doing. And in the case of the sons of Zebedee, they leave their father, Zebedee, James and John leave Zebedee behind and they go and they follow Jesus at once. They have no idea what they're signing up for. In fact, Jesus says to them, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Can you just say that it doesn't make sense. If you're a fisherman And someone says to you, hey, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. That doesn't make sense. It's not a sensical statement. Yet there's something about the life of Jesus that draws them. That draws them. Now, they were probably somewhat familiar because at this point, Jesus is doing some teaching in the region. And so they've probably heard of him. It's uh, Scholars believe it wasn't like this is the first time they had seen Jesus. But it's at this moment where Jesus extends the invitation to them and says, come, follow me. Allow me to be, I mean, this this picture of follow me, what he's saying is, I want to be your master. I want to be the one who leads you. And so immediately at once, they leave everything. They leave everything to follow Jesus. It's important to note, by the way, that this was a bit of a process for them. There's times where these disciples go back to fishing. There's times where they go back to their old ways of doing things, of their old ways of living life. And and that's encouraging for us. It's encouraging for me because sometimes I feel like I'm taking two steps forward and two steps back or three steps back and one step forward. And so sometimes the journey with Jesus is not this straight line and, and this easy journey that we want it to be. And we're encouraged by the disciples. They give their lives over to Jesus and they say, yes, we will follow you. Jesus extends the same invitation to you and I. He says to us, come and follow me. Come, follow me. Make me the center of your life. He invites us to make him our Lord, to make him our master. And his promise to us is this, when I do, that I will do a work in you and I will do a work through you that you can't believe. He says to us, I will make you fishers of men. And maybe that statement doesn't make sense, but there's something about his life that says, Lord, I will follow you and I'll allow you to do a work in me that I cannot fathom on my own. And just like the disciples were called to respond. Another time when Jesus was speaking to a crowd, he said this in Mark 8, 34 through 36, he says, then, then he called to the crowd, the, the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Jesus spells it out. 
He absolutely spells it out for us. He tells us what it means to put him at the center. He says, deny yourself. Deny yourself the things that you want, the things that your desires, your passions, your wants, the things that drive your flesh. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. What does that mean? Taking up your cross means walking in humility and submission to him. In the same way that Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross, that the cross was a symbol of humility and submission to the will of the Father, that Jesus says that, you, that we would deny ourselves and that in humility we would take up our cross, that we would walk humbly before him, that there's no room for pride, there's no room for, for me in that equation. It's saying, God, what do you desire? What do you want? And then Jesus says again, follow me. Obedience, trust, ultimate trust to say, God, I will follow you. I will put you first. Jesus goes on and he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Again, Jesus said a lot of things that didn't make sense to his listeners, but they make sense in the kingdom that when we lose our lives, when we turn our lives over to Jesus, what we receive in return is life eternal. It's purpose. It's Jesus. We receive all of who he is. And he makes that statement. It's no good if we gain all of these things in this world, all of these treasures, all of this stuff, and forfeit our soul the thing that is the most important about us, the thing that will live on for eternity. Jesus says, I want that part of who you are. The second thing that we see that happens here with the Magi is this. They worship a child. So Dr. A.J. Swoboda, uh, he, he points out in, in regard to children in that culture, he points out that, that in, the, in, in ancient cultures, children didn't have the value that they do today. They're not perceived the same way as they are today. And it doesn't mean that children didn't have value, but so much in our culture revolves around our children. We, we put a lot of focus and a lot of attention on our children. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, though I, I do think there can be a place where we can even say, God, I'm putting my children in the place of you in my life, which doesn't serve the Lord. It doesn't serve us and it doesn't serve our children either, but that's a subject for another day. So chew on that. And so the lives of children uh, carried a different, uh, a different weight in that culture. And it can sound, can sound cold, especially in a culture that celebrates children so much. It's, that's hard for us to wrap our head, heads around, yet that was just the reality uh, of that time. Think about this, though. When Jesus says in Luke, Luke chapter 18, let the children come to me, what he's actually saying is uh, he, he's, he's challenging the cultural norm, not just that children were a bother, but he's saying is that children have inherent value in the kingdom of God, and he's challenging the societal norms about the value of children. So Jesus himself ascribes this value to children. But we also see this for the wise men. See, people who knew better didn't worship babies. They didn't worship 
children. And so the fact that these magi, these wise men come to Bethlehem and they bow down and they worship him flew in the face of the culture. It flew in the face of the the norms of that day. It would have been thoroughly confusing for Joseph and for Mary and for that whole community to see these, these wise men coming and bowing before Jesus. It would not have made sense now, of course, Joseph and Mary know there's something special about Jesus, but there must have been a sense of just awe of what was happening in that moment. But the wise men point out to us that there is, uh, there is a place where the cultural expectations can overshadow the legitimacy and the intent of our worship. See, faith doesn't always make sense. And we've talked about that a little bit already today. Doesn't always make sense. That's why it's called faith. Faith is called faith because sometimes we have to believe without having all of the information or fully understanding. And here's the thing is that people around you may not get it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. No one likes to look foolish. None of us like to look foolish. Now, there's a ton of videos on YouTube where people do embarrassing things and they get caught on video and it's funny to watch. America's Funniest Videos was a whole series based around that. And, and you have a good, good laugh and it can be embarrassing. In fact, my wife and I and our family for a number of years, we were the activities directors uh, at our Foursquare Youth Camp here in Southern California. And one of the things that we committed ourselves to and we decided is that we would not uh, embarrass kids in front of the whole camp. We wouldn't do games and we wouldn't do activities that got a laugh at someone's expense because the damage that does is just so, it's so deep. It's so uh, unseen and, and it can be so lasting. And so we just decided we're not going to do games and do activities that would get a laugh at someone's expense. No one likes to be made of fool love. So when we read here that Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness, what he's saying is the message of the cross doesn't make sense to people who have not been saved, who've not surrendered their lives to God. And here's the thing is, if you say yes to Jesus, if you receive the message of the gospel, as Jesus even said before that we should do, that we would give our lives to the gospel what ends up happening is we can be associated with that foolishness and then we could even feel like people are looking at us like we're fools. Maybe people in your family, maybe when you came to Jesus, people said, well, what are you doing? Why are you doing such a foolish thing? I've had the opportunity to talk with people uh, who, who I've pastored or I've led to the Lord who've talked about that dynamic with their extended family where they would say yes to Jesus and there would be this pushback. Why would you do such a silly thing? That's such a religion is blah, blah, blah. And you become associated with a gospel that to some people seems like foolishness. But here's the thing. God's desire is not to embarrass. His desire is to save and to empower. We know this, that someone who is drowning, 
when a rescuer, when a lifeguard will swim out to them and try and rescue them, they will fight them off because they lack the capacity and the perspective to understand what's going on. So the very thing that brings them life is the thing that they will fight against. And this is what Paul is saying is that so often the very thing that brings people life, they will fight against it. It doesn't make sense to them. It's foolishness to them. But when we make Jesus the center of our lives, Paul says this, for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And so the word of caution here is that we can allow the culture and the desire to not look foolish to get us into a place where we do not put Jesus at the center of our lives. That the desire to not look foolish can lead to a watered down gospel. It can lead to living a version of the gospel that is not all in. And Jesus would say, no, 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 put me at the center. Because what ends up happening when we make him the Lord of our lives is that he empowers us. Would you receive that power? Would you push into who he is? Reject the culture, reject the things of the world. The things that would say this doesn't make sense and say, Jesus, I want to put you at the center of his life. And then finally today, the Magi come and they bring him their best. They bring him their best. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All very valuable. These gifts were incredibly valuable. In fact, they were the kind of items that hold their value because all three of those, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are still valuable today. Over 2,000 years later, those things are still valuable. And so they bring these gifts, these precious things, and they bring gifts that have value and they have meaning. In fact, they have meaning beyond what we have time to unpack today. But these, these gifts are intentional, they're meaningful, they're valuable, and they, say, and they make a declaration about the value of this child who Jesus is, and so they bring their best because he is worthy of worship. Well, what's our best? When it comes to us bringing our best to the, the Lord that should be at the center of our lives, what is our best? Paul answers that question for us in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. There it is again, the, the, the pressure of this world. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't conform. Instead, bring your very lives as an offering Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice that God wants all of who you are. This is your true and proper worship. For the Magi, it was coming and bringing gifts and bowing down and sacrificing the time and the travel and the distance. They had, they had come to worship Jesus and they brought him those gifts. For us, it's bringing our very lives the way that we acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of our lives, the center of our lives, is we bring ourselves to him and we worship him with all of who we are. Our lives are everything. This is true and this is proper worship. 
Paul's caution here is don't conform to the pattern of this world. The same thing he said to the Corinthians. Hey, this message is foolishness. It's not going to fit the pattern of this world. There's a way that the world does things. And then there's a way that God does things. And God's way so often contradicts the world's way. So don't conform to the way the world, things, the world does things. Do things the way that God has called you to. And can I just tell you, sometimes that's the world's interpretation of what God says can get in the way of what God actually says. And that there's all kinds of wrestling that, that happens with theology and doctrine, making sure that we get it right. But don't just believe what someone else says. Learn the scripture, press in, make Jesus the Lord of your life. Don't live off of someone else's faith. Put him at the center of your life. Paul says, don't conform, don't conform. And when you do, when you bring the best of who you are, Paul wraps it up this way. He says, then you will be able to discern what God's will is. His very best for your life. For the disciples on that shore, Jesus said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that's exactly what happened. And he took them to places that they would never have imagined. And they did things with their lives they would never have dreamed of. But we read about them today, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, rather. Jesus is inviting us. He says, would you surrender your life to me? Would you make me the Lord of life, your life, make me the Lord of your life, put me at the center and I will do a work in you so much so that you will be able to discern what my will is and you will walk in that with joy, with power, with victory. And I will do things that you cannot even imagine. God has the very best in store for you. So let me ask you today, is there anything that stands in the way of you putting Jesus first? Is there anything that has gotten in the way of him being the Lord of your life? Of you being able to pick up your, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him? Maybe the culture, maybe the comfort, comforts of life, maybe money or pride or your reputation and what people think about you. Maybe there's fear that's there. The invitation today from Jesus is simply this, come follow me. He works out the details. He, he, he loves with grace and mercy and kindness and leads us that way as well. In fact, that's what we'll talk about next week is the way that Jesus leads us when he's at the center of our lives. But would you respond to him today, to that call to say, come and follow me? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth, that you gave your life. You were born into this world. Lord, we thank you for the example even of the Magi who came to worship you. They came and they searched and they looked everywhere they could and they asked around until they found you and they worshiped you and they, and they gave you gifts and they praised your holy name. God, I pray that our heart's inclination would be the same way, that we would commit every part of who we are to seeking you and finding you in our lives to making you the Lord of our lives, to offering our lives as, as, a, as a sacrifice of worship, our true and proper worship. Jesus, be the center of our lives, I pray. In your name, amen. Well, God bless you. Pray you have a wonderful week. We look forward to seeing you next time.